as I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen. I'm never quitting on my mission. I'm going to roll with what I'm giving. Got some ambition, this new addition, filling positions. Looking at devoiding myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment, you stressing, but you're going to be counting blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working, open curtains. Haters swerving because they ain't ready for your final version. Whoa. I'm never going to give up, give up. Fall down, I just got to get up, get up, yeah. You're listening to the Toxic and Show on WNHHLP 103.5 FM, your home for community radio. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. And it is a it's a good morning here in the, the uh, North America. I was talking to a friend this morning who uh, is going through undergoing uh, proton therapy for for prostate. And as you may know, we've done a few shows on prostate. Um, and it was just interesting to chat with him because these these issues of, of morbidity and and survival and thrival uh, are with us for a while, and the the shows that we've done under the, with the Yale Center for Clinical Investigation and in partnership with the uh, cultural ambassadors to the Yale Clinical Research Program is, in my mind, have been just so instrumental uh, about what is what does it mean about taking ownership of your own of your of your of your health and your family's health and your community's health. And it's not just a mantra or a phrase, but we can really be proactive and we can be agents of change. You hear that word so often, agents of change, and what does it mean? Uh, but it's just making history rather than history being made about you or even after you've left. And today, we really have a, I love the title of today's show, Live Better, Live Better, Comparing the Effects of Medications in Older Adults with Stable Angina. If you're not a member of the ARP crowd, or if you've just went to a party last night and you feel you're not elderly, and you see, you might think you might not need to tune into the show, let me just attempt to correct you and say that you definitely probably know someone that's old. And if you don't know someone that's old, you may become old if you're blessed in, in, in one year, <laughs> two years, or, or a few decades from now. So uh, this show is, is focused mm-hmm. on comparing the effects of medications in older adults with stable angina and Dr. Michael Nana is with us to kind of explore that, that, that topic. But this is a show for everyone. So listen to Attunely. We're going to share some information. Dr. Nana is going to talk about the clinical trial, uh, participation, the, the, the ramifications and the nuances. We're joined by Reverend Dr. Leroy O'Perry, pastor of St. Stephen's Amy Zion Church and cultural ambassador to the Yale Clinical Research Program, and Reverend Elvin Clayton, pastor of Walter's Memorial Amy Zion Church and cultural ambassador to the Yale Clinical Research Program. Gentlemen, welcome. Um, Dr. Nana, we're gonna jump right in. I just wanted to mention that people have heard me say this more than once, and I, I will say it for as long as I have breath, that clinical trials are so essential to developing the medications that you and us and your loved ones take every day. As I mentioned the person this morning that I spoke with that going through proton therapy, that was as a result of clinical trials. Uh, and these trials are not to be are not possible without everyday people, every morning people, every afternoon people, every evening people signing up to participate in, in this really important research. Um, really looking forward to Dr. Nana sharing with us information about the Live Better Research study um, and, and what we seek to learn in terms of the type of heart medications. We've heard this term, perhaps beta blockers or calcium channel blockers, uh, uh, but but what what kind of Science and medicine is a is an art of discovery, and it's a passion of discovery. And we're really pleased to have Dr. Michael Nana here, assistant professor of internal of internal medicine, 
uh, as I mentioned, Reverend Dr. Lira O'Perry and Reverend Elvin Clayton. Dr. Nana, kind of kick us off. Uh, you're a um, interventional uh, person, uh, cardiologist that all these, often in the medical terminology it gets confusing, but uh, you, you, you explore the heart. <laughs> let me, let me, you explore That's a good way heart. to describe it. You explore the heart in a very methodical, deliberate, and, and heartfelt way to use that expression. But tell us about your focus uh, on the care of older adults living with multiple chronic conditions in general, but then how did you even become, air, become, uh, become interested in this area of, of interest? So good morning and, and share with us if you would. Well, good morning and, uh, and thank you for having me. This is a, a phenomenal opportunity for me to hopefully raise a little bit of awareness about heart disease, uh, in, especially in older adults and, and certainly um, to talk a little bit about the Live Better trial. Uh, you know, it's a great question about how this became an area of interest for me. I think, you know, we can all relate to growing up with elders in our family that we really looked up to. For me, it was my grandparents who I admired and I think in a lot of ways helped shape me as a person. Um, I saw very clearly the sacrifices that they made so that uh, we could have a better life. And, and I think that's true of a lot of families, something a lot of people can relate to. So I had this affection for older adults, uh, even going into my medical training. Uh, and the thing that was really striking to me over and over again, as I completed my residency and fellowship was that even though the majority of the patients that I was taking care of were in their 70s and 80s and beyond, the evidence underlying the treatments that I was delivering had mostly been generated in younger populations. So mm. there was this, this extrapolation going on where I felt like the treatments we were giving people really weren't adequately tested in older folks, especially those living with multiple chronic conditions. So I mm. said to myself, you know, I think we can do better. And I decided that I was going to try to focus my career on accomplishing that. Mm, mm, tremendous, tremendous. Uh, just, I mean, that, that, that sense of passion and dedication that, that you mentioned is just so, so key in terms of your, your passion and your purpose and, and your product. Your product is uh, you know, survival and health and, and thrival. Uh, talk to us a little bit, because we hear this term um, heart disease, and sometimes people don't even pay attention Sometimes we get overwhelmed, overwhelmed with information, uh, but it, it's an it's an important topic uh, for, from my standpoint, and also about the prevalence. It's I'm I'm, I'm concerned that people hear that one month is this this particular celebration, another month is another celebration. I'm concerned that people kind of just for, they they get bombarded with information about heart disease and breast cancer and alcoholism, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, how prevalent is heart disease in this country? Is it a big problem, a manageable problem? And kind of tie that into uh, why it's an important topic from your from your perspective. Yeah, that's, uh, that's an important question. You know, I think we've made some progress over the years in terms of developing treatments and, and you know, uh, procedures that can improve quality of life and survival in some cases. But heart disease remains the number one killer of adults in the United States. Hmm. Not to mention, it's also one of the major causes of disability, hospitalization. Uh, it presents a burden for both patients and caregivers alike. So I, I think there's no doubt that heart disease is something that we need to be aware of and, and really motivated to address. You know, I'll say that, you know, it's the leading cause of death in both men and women mm. uh, it, across most racial and ethnic groups. I think, you know, the last statistics I saw from the CDC quoted that a person dies from heart disease in the United States every 33 seconds. Mm -hmm. um, 
that's close to 700,000 deaths in the U.S. Um, every year. One in every five deaths in the U.S. is due to heart disease, and around half of them are related to coronary artery disease, which is a subset underneath heart disease, meaning narrowing from plaque uh, in one's arteries, one, one's heart arteries. And so, um, yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that heart disease is is a huge burden in, on our country and and certainly something that should be at the forefront of all of our minds. Thanks. And, and we're, you know, we're going to talk about the, the Live Better program and uh, angina and, and throw around some some words and interventions and how people can participate in studies. But I was just wondering, Reverend Perry and Reverend Clayton, just to kind of nail it, nail it on the head at the top of this, this show here, why this uh, this topic is so important for African-American older adults. You guys have been pastoring and ministering and up, up in the mix with, with our community for so many decades. And just, just curious what your per perceptions might be as we on Monday, June 26 and 2023 about uh, what, why this topic is so important for it per pertaining to African-American older adults. Re Reverend Perry, Reverend Clayton. Yes, Tom, I think that first of all, the statistics show that 350,000 African-Americans die every year from sudden cardiac arrest. Mm -hmm. and twice the number uh, to our white counterparts. Mm. And, and I think that anyone who's doing a study um, is going to benefit this community in terms of enlightening all of us as to what, what can we do to help prevent this? And in order to do that, we need to understand it better. So I think mm. that the study is an awesome study because mm. He said it points to a particular part of our population that may have been overlooked. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that, you know, it's it's groundbreaking. I'm glad to be a part of it. And I'm hoping that we can we can get the information out to this community so that we can be a part of the study. Indeed. And, and just before we take the deep dive in terms of the Live Better trial, Reverend Clayton, any, any thoughts in this regard as well? Well, Dr. Nana kind of hit the, the hammer on the head of the nail. Mm. Um, and, but for our older brothers and sisters, it, it is even more critical because of some of the other issues that, that they may have. Um, mm -hmm. And Dr. Perry was also stating that we we have to make them aware of what's going on, but we got to start so much younger. Yes. We, we have to make sure that people eat better, exercise better, worship the Lord better. Mm -hmm. All that's a part of this journey. And for our people of color, the numbers are staggering. Mm. So, so we got to make sure that we keep having shows like the Ficklin show and keep sharing with people every opportunity that we, we have to, to make people aware of the importance of this. I, I have a question. I don't know if it's too early to ask the question. Please, but, 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 as, um, as, a, as the spirit moves you, Reverend Clayton. Um, like with medications, Children, little children are not just small adults. The doses and, and things of that nature have to be modified and, and given to them at a certain rate because of their size and, 
what have you. And I'm wondering that we need to make those type of changes for senior Americans and senior mm -hmm. people. And, and Dr. Nana, maybe we can weave in your answer to that question as we talk about the, the Live Better trial, because I know that that's kind of, there, there's a relationship there. So uh, let me let me throw the mic, pass the mic to you in terms of the Live Better trial and, and kind of reference uh, Dr. Reverend Clayton's uh, question. And, and I think it kind of also pertains to the, the, the methodology that you're undertaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to touch on Reverend Clayton's question first, because I, I think it's very insightful. I, it's it's sort of part of the rationale but behind the NIH's inclusion across the lifespan policy, which I hope we'll touch on a little bit later. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, the basic tenet is that clinical studies are what inform clinical practice, meaning the treatments we deliver to patients are ultimately tr the treatments and the doses we choose because of hopefully the evidence that's been generated from clinical studies. Hmm. So when a group of patients are underrepresented in clinical studies as both older adults and African-Americans have historically been, that means that the treatments and the doses that we're delivering haven't necessarily been tested like they should have been in those underrepresented populations. So to give you an example, hmm of the more than 50,000 patients who participated in FDA-approved cardiovascular trials from 2015 to 2016, only two and a half percent of the trial participants were African-American. Mm. So it's absolutely essential that the studies we conduct going forward make a concerted effort to recruit individuals from these historically underrepresented groups so that we know what the right doses are, right? Um, and it's even more important in cardiovascular disease studies because, again, older adults and African-Americans are actually the patients at the highest risk. They have mm. the highest prevalence of disease. So one could argue that these are precisely the groups who are the most important to enroll. Um, so I, that's what I would mm. say about that. I think, you know, to, to dive into Live Better, um, Live Better is, is funded by the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. And, and our purpose is to generate better evidence for older adults living with stable angina or uh, symptomatic stable coronary artery disease who need to be treated with um, what are called anti-anginal medications to help with their symptoms. Uh, and we know from previous studies that in general, it's best to treat this condition with medicines first before we go on to considering stents in the arteries. But what we don't know is what is the best medicine to start in older mm. adults, especially mm. those older adults who are living with multiple other chronic conditions. Um, and beyond that, we certainly don't know what the best medicine is to improve the outcomes that matter most to older persons, things like quality of life, maintaining cognition, function, mobility, and independence. I love the word um, that Tom mentioned, thrival, right? Uh, and so that's what Live Better is setting out to do to determine which of the two medication classes of choice for this condition, beta blockers or calcium channel blockers, is the best medicine to start with. And and again, we have 40, 40 minutes or so, Dr. Nana and Reverend Clayton, Reverend Perry, so we can take the deep dive. But Dr. Nana, just clarify, if you would, for me, for someone that's listening, are there any criteria in terms of who can participate or who cannot, inclusion or exclusion? Is there, you know, are there any goalposts or... Yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, that's an important question. Like any clinical trial, there are inclusion and exclusion criteria. Um, 
we're looking for individuals 75 years and above. That's sort of how we defined older adults, and that's based on the literature. Um, and folks that are living with stable angina or what we call symptomatic stable coronary artery disease and that are not currently on a beta blocker or a calcium channel blocker. We want patients who should be started on antianginal by their clinician, but don't have a clear indication for one or another, meaning these are patients that the doc is planning to start one of these medicines, but there isn't a certain medication that really is clearly preferable for one reason or another. And there are different conditions that would make one or the other more preferable. Um, in terms of exclusion criteria, we really tried to minimize the exclusion criteria because we want to enroll a representative population, right? Mm -hmm. We wanna enroll the patients that we're treating in the real world. So um, one important point is that because most of the follow-up for the study is over the phone, we do need patients who have access to a phone and are able to complete those phone interviews. But other than that, again, the exclusion criteria are really minimal um, because we're really trying to enroll that truly representative population of folks that we're taking care of on a day-to-day -day basis. Excellent. And Re Reverend Perry, I, I, I know that lean when I see that lean on, on the show, <laughs> that, that leads, so, so go for it. Yes, I, 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 was, I was concerned about the fact that normally uh, older African-American men, you've got hypertension or some form of diabetes or uh, some kind of heart problem. And if they're already taking medications for one or more of these comorbidities, would that make them ineligible for your study? Yeah, so um, if the patient is already on a medicine and they've been on it and they're continuing to take it, they're ineligible. The reason being is that if we allow patients in that have already been on the medication, it introduces selection bias because we already know that the patient tolerates the medicine, that the medicine works for that individual patient. And so it removes the element of sort of randomization and, and uh, keeping an unbiased approach. Um, with that said, if a patient has been on the medication in the past and then came off for whatever reason, they would still be eligible. If the patient was recently started within the last two weeks on the medicine, we can take them off and re-randomize them to one or the other. Um, and certainly, you know, it, it's something that uh, that we've run into. There are going to be patients that are on beta blockers and calcium channel blockers. They're two of the most common medicines that are prescribed. Um, but in order to really get at clinical effectiveness of the medicines, we we need to make sure that we're not taking a bunch of patients that are already on the medicines. And Dr. Hannah, we're going to mention this several times throughout the show, but just just share with people, if you would, even at this stage, uh, how you can how folks can find out more information, participate, uh, talk to their their grandpa, grandfather, or grandmother, or even themselves. But what's the way of, of contacting and learning more about possible participation in the clinical trial? So, um, so thanks for bringing that up. That's a great question. Um, my team gets mad at me for doing this, but I always tell people just email me directly, um, which they tell me not to do, but I, my email is easy to find. It's michael.nana at yale.edu. I'm always eager to talk to people who are excited about the trial. I think um, the official way to get in touch uh, is via our Yale email address. So that's livebetter-trial at yale.edu. 
Um, so livebetter-trial at yale.edu. And then um, we have a wonderful website uh, that's going to be up hopefully in the next month or two. Hmm. Um, and that's livebettertrial.com or livebettertrial.org. Both of those will work. And that's going to contain a ton of information relevant to the trial and how to ask questions. And I think will be a great resource for folks. Okay. Tremendous, tremendous. Dr. Nana, you mentioned a- angina. Uh, what, what is that? Some people will refer to it as, as angina, but I'm but I'm I'm assuming angina is now is the correct the correct pronunciation. You live either live one learn. is fine. <laughs> uh, but but what are what are the symptoms and and how is it a uh, how is it diagnosed? Yeah, so um, angina is the description we use for chest pain or discomfort that comes from the heart muscle not getting enough oxygen, um, and so while the symptoms of angina it can often feel like pain in the chest. It can also present as squeezing in the chest, pressure, mm. tightness, mm. heaviness, burning. Some folks describe it as an ache. Um, and mm-hmm. we even see other symptoms such as shortness of breath with exertion is a very common one. Jaw pain or arm pain that can present as what we describe uh, describe as anginal equivalence, where instead of chest pain, the patient feels these other symptoms when the heart isn't getting enough oxygen. Um, and then in terms of how we diagnose it, um, we generally start with a non-invasive test, whether it's a stress test or a, a coronary CAT scan of the heart arteries. And, and we can also do something more invasive, which is what I do on my clinical days, uh, called a cardiac catheterization, uh, if mm. our suspicion is really high for a severe blockage. Mm. 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 Reverend Perry, I can see that, see your, your brain cells moving once again. <laughs> yes, no, I, I, I just find it so fascinating that um, when you talk about treatments, and, and diagnosis, you know, uh, a number of elders or seniors, or black men in particular, have had these nuclear stress tests. They've mm-hmm. had the, um, they've had mild angina. And so they, they have gone without treatment, but they're just being watched mm-hmm. uh, for uh, a period of time by their cardiologist to see whether or not that is something that really needs to find uh, medication for. So in your study, though, it just seems like, you know, we're, we're, you got an open market here. I'm trying to figure out how do we get into that market to attract uh, 75-year-olds or their family members to um, come in or to have this discussion with you or your team uh, with their doctors. It, would they need a referral from their doctor mm-hmm. or can they just, a, a family member who's concerned that dad has been showing some of these symptoms of angina, could they just, are those are the people that you're looking to um, be contacted by? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, part of our study is about raising awareness, right? Mm. And and hopefully, you know, targeting health equity. And so if, the, if someone who's listening to this show has a family member or themselves is having chest discomfort uh, and don't necessarily have a doctor that they can go to and see and talk to about that and get tested for it, please. We, we want to hear from folks, you know, we, Mm. uh, and and certainly, you know, I'm a cardiologist at Yale, that's my day job. So, you know, if, if there are patients that need to be seen, we can make that happen. Uh, I, I think there's no doubt about that. And so, um, you know, I definitely encourage folks with questions to reach out and, um, and, and, you, you know, 
you want to be vigilant about your symptoms, right? You know, I think that there's a tendency to not want to bother your doctor and say, oh, you know, maybe this is just heartburn or maybe this is because, you know, I, I haven't been, you know, getting outside as much. But if there's a concerning symptom that's different from what you're used to, it's mm. never wrong to talk to your doctor. Let us figure it out. Let us decide whether it's something to worry about or not. Mm. Mm. Reverend Clayton, I can also see your your body language is a little different from Reverend Perry's, but I can also I have a I have my mystical hat on this morning, so I can I can read people's <laughs> minds, and I I can see Reverend Clayton. You have a question also. Yeah. Dr. Nana has uh, somewhat answered my thoughts, but uh, I I have noticed that when people have angina, uh, some of them think that it's not a serious matter, mm -hmm. but 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 from listening to the doctor this morning it, it's very it can be very serious mm -hmm. so so making uh, the awareness of how important it is to at least have a conversation with your doctor it, it's vital yeah, with, with this Absolutely. yeah that's a great point you know i like again i like to tell patients it's not your job to figure out whether you're having a heart attack that's our job as your physician uh, and I emphasize that because lots of different symptoms can, pre can present in patients mm -hmm. with a heart attack. And the last thing I ever want to do is tell a patient to ignore a, a symptom that might actually be something really serious. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, I think it's never wrong to, to talk to your doctor if you have concerns. And, and Dr. Nan, I want to move to the um, asking you about the community advisory board. But before I do, it seems to me that I want to just throw in um, if there are any preventive steps, pro proactive steps for people that are listening, not that to, to, pre to pre uh, prevent people from having to participate in your trial. What can we do to, to lower the risk of, of heart disease? If any, you, you hear a lot of these messages and you see a lot of health, health fairs and people's recommendation, but from your standpoint, uh, what can community members do to, to, uh, to, to lower their risk of, of heart disease? Yeah, that's, that's a really important question as well. I, you know, I would direct patients to something called Life's Essential Eight, which is um, put out by the American Heart Association, which is meant to identify sort of easy, straightforward steps that we can all take to reduce our risk of heart disease uh, and to live a healthier lifestyle. So, uh, you know, just to quickly review Life's Essential Eight, it's to eat better. So aiming for sort of an overall healthy eating pattern that includes a balanced diet and whole foods and fruits and vegetables, lean protein, nuts and seeds. Um, being more active. Um, so minimum goal for exercise in a week is 150 minutes of moderate exercise um, or 75 minutes of vigorous exercise. So certainly doing more is okay as well. Um, quitting tobacco products, uh, which I generally will tell my patients that's priority number one out of anything you can do. Quitting smoking is, is really the most important in terms of reducing your risk. Uh, something that gets ignored frequently is getting healthy sleep. Um, mm. So ideally seven to nine hours per night, um, achieving a healthy body weight. Um, so we have, you know, we have an obesity epidemic in the United States and, and certainly maintaining a healthy weight is, is crucial. Um, controlling your cholesterol, managing mm. your blood sugar, um, managing your blood pressure. Uh, so those are the essential eight. And I think uh, if you can do those things, you can undoubtedly reduce your risk of having a heart attack or developing coronary disease. Mm. 
Mm. I'm, I'm tempted, Doc, Dr. Nana, to ask you to repeat those again, but where, <laughs> where can people, where can people, I mean, it's just, I'm just thinking, I'm trying to check off the ones that I've done. <laughs> I'm, I'm really self-reflecting here, but so where is that information available or what, what did you call it? It was a cell. Yeah, it's called Life's Essential Eight. Uh, mm-hmm. It actually, it used to be Life's Simple Seven. You may have heard of the Simple Seven uh, and it got updated, I think, to include Healthy Sleep was the addition uh, pretty recently. And that's put out by the American Heart Association. Excellent, excellent. Can excellent. I ask this? I, I need to ask a question. Please. No, you're talking about healthy sleep. Mm-hmm. What, what about people who say they, they only need three or four hours? a great question. You know, I, I, I'm not sure that, um, and I'm not a sleep expert, but I'm not sure that we know the answer to that question, right? Is if someone has gone their whole life sleeping five hours and is fully refreshed on five hours of sleep and feel great and do great, is that unhealthy to, to do what your body needs? My, my suspicion is that it's healthy. It's fine. I think, you, you know, people know their bodies and you sleep as much as you need. Um, but I'm not sure what the data is around that. It's a great question. That's actually a good research question. Maybe that's our next <laughs> research study. <laughs> Reverend Perry, you had mentioned just before we went on air, in terms of the Yale Center for Clinical Investigation and the Cultural Ambassadors, your connection with Duke and Dr. Nana has, uh, has spent some time in that Carolina area. Uh, what is the connection between the the Yale, the, the cultural ambassadors? Because I, I want people to kind of really always be reminded that it's just not a, a, a local enterprise, that your your, your tentacles are, uh, are significant in, ter- in terms of the cultural ambassador community outreach. Yes, Tom. So when we had in New Haven with the Amy Zion Church collaborating with Yale, uh, were informed of the great disparities in terms of the number of African Americans who had signed up for clinical research, we made a major effort to change those outcomes. And so in New Haven, when we were two or three percent, we went as high as 12, then 20, then 40, then 60, and 80 percent in some studies. And to take it to a, a higher level, we decided to contact our AME Zion churches in North Carolina mm. and partner with Duke. And so we went down and we did some training sessions with them. We brought them up to Yale uh, to do some training here with them. And uh, they started uh, a group called Team uh, or Heal. And that's what they do. They do the same thing that we're doing here in terms of recruiting, educating, and empowering um, minority populations to the need for being engaged in clinical research. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Excellent. Let, let's jump to the community advisory board. I love the need for inclusion and just kind of rallying, rallying the troops and, and galvanizing mm-hmm. the troops and just continue to kind of breathe new life into people's uh, passion and, and interest. And I just, I was really just uh, excited to hear about Dr. Nana, you're deciding to uh, create a community advisory board to help with this uh, study design. Tell us, uh, if you would, a little bit more about that. And Reverend Perry and Reverend Clayton, I want to ask you to join in on that as well. Yeah, so, you know, stakeholder engagement uh, is is vital to the success of any clinical trial uh, to make sure that the research that you're doing reflects the priorities and the aims of the population you're trying to serve. And this is something that PCORI actually really, really emphasizes and prioritizes as well. Mm. Um, 
there are different levels of stakeholder engagement in our trial and Live Better. Um, we have multiple ways for patients and caregivers to give feedback. Um, one is with the patient advisory group um, that includes uh, uh, older adults living with heart disease and chronic conditions um, who can inform every, every aspect, aspect of the trial from study design, the informed consent process, recruitment materials. So really everything about Live Better uh, to its core has been you know, uh, advised by our patient advisory group. We've also engaged with the community advisory board that you mentioned, um, and that's run through the program on aging here at Yale, hmm. which similarly is a, a group of older adults from the community who've been given um, uh, the opportunity uh, to, to give important feedback to different studies, and, uh, and that includes the Live Better trial. Uh, and, and they've been giving us important feedback basically from before we even secured the funding for the trial, when we were applying hmm. for the funding all the way up to the present. Uh, and I, I also want to make sure I mention um, we're hopefully looking to be able to form a diversity council um, mm. if we can secure some additional funding from Bacori made up of community leaders um, and representatives, our stakeholders, to specifically help us to enroll a diverse and representative population and hopefully improve health equity. Mm -hmm. um, so multiple layers to that uh, and obviously just a crucial, crucial part of the study. Reverend Perry, Reverend Clayton, just kind of amplify a little bit more because that's so, it, it might sound routine or, and people might say, oh, I've, I've heard this before, but you got to lay the, the structure, the, the, the infrastructure, the communication structure on a sustained basis. This is just not a one-off. So I'm just curious what your thoughts were in this regard. Well, Tom, I, I want to say that I'm appreciative of the fact that Dr. Nana came to the uh, cultural ambassadors, the YCCI cultural ambassadors, uh, to get some insights from us mm. with regards to this study. And two or three of the things that we mentioned to him was number one, that uh, we appreciated the fact that we, you know, we, we're suspicious of studies that get started and then come back to the community and say, this is where we are, uh, we want you to join us. Our, our priority is we want to be at the beginning of the study so mm -hmm. that we can walk through this study with you. And if there are hiccups or if there are things that we think that are offensive or um, that may be detrimental to your study with regards to our population, we can tell you. Number two, we did advise Dr. Nana that we needed, that he needed to have an, a community advisory board. And mm. we suggested that on that board, there'd be members of, um, of our uh, YCCI cultural ambassadors. And the reason we stressed that was we've been doing this for over 10 years. Mm -hmm. We have an expertise here in terms of how you, how you um, recruit, how you, what your flyers should look like, what the messages should look like. And, you know, and it should be made up of, of people who have a knowledge about who do this mm -hmm. all the time. And, and to have a faith group, a trusted part of the community working with you is, is just essential. And without it, I think that our studies, anyone who does a study without that is not thinking properly. Hmm. Excellent. Well, we, we definitely want to think 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 prop, properly and get up and <laughs> each, each morning on the right in, in our right mind that 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 that's for sure that, that that's gentlemen we have a, we have about 20, uh, 10, 10 minutes or so so as things kind of occur to you this is such a fruitful 
fruitful discussion. I want to kind of get Dr. Nana, what we've discussed so so far, what, what kind of comes to your mind? Uh, what would you like to share with, with folks uh, other than us uh, contributing several million dollars to your research project? Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> that would be great. That would be great. I, All right. <laughs> I, um, you know, I want to, I want to echo what, um, what Dr. Perry just mentioned. And I think as researchers and as clinicians, and actually just more broadly in life, it's important to recognize your blind spots, right? Mm. And recognize where you can lean on the expertise of your partners and your collaborators. Uh, and I was incredibly fortunate to be at a place like Yale well, where we have the cultural ambassadors group who have so much rich and robust expertise in this area where, you know, I don't need to be an expert necessarily in how to recruit a diverse population because I have the experts here that I can just stop and listen to. Uh, and so that's really what I tried to do from the outset is I wasn't there to tell them how I wanted to recruit a diverse population for Live Better. I was there to ask them, how do I recruit a diverse population and live better and listen? Um, and I think all of researchers should really kind of take that to heart because I think it creates a much more robust collaborative environment. And I think you end up um, which, with a much better product um, and, and hopefully getting more patients of color into your study. Um, and so uh, I just want to thank and, and, uh, Dr. Perry and Reverend Clayton and, uh, and honestly, um, a major shout out to them for, for other researchers at Yale. You know, if, if you're committed to, you know, recruiting a diverse population in your study, reach out to YCCI and the cultural ambassadors um, because it's been such a rich collaboration thus far and hopefully more to come. Definitely more to come. And Dr. Nan, I really want to thank you also for your your transparency, your, your email address again, in terms of how people can, people can reach you. Yeah. It's just my first name dot last name at yale.edu. So michael.nana, it's N-A-N-N-A at yale.edu. And I welcome people emailing me directly. That's totally fine. Excellent. Reverend Clayton, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing fine, sir. Good, good. We share, share some of your pearls of wisdom. I really enjoy your, 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 your thought process. It's, it's just been, I don't get a chance to really say that to you as much as I would like. So I want to kind of publicly kind of declare my appreciation for your, your, your cognitive method. Something has happened that I can't, you keep going in and out. I hope, I'm not sure if it's on my end or your okay. end. Okay. So um, I think it's your end, uh, Reverend. Because everybody okay. else be very clear, and sometimes you do, you're delayed. There's a delay sometimes when you're talking. Um, so right, I, I think maybe a Wi-Fi issue. We'll have to get that resolved, Doctor Nana. As we kind of wind up, the I've I've heard this phrase the uh, the inclusion across the lifespan lifespan policy inclusion across the lifespan policy. Kind of share with break that down into terms of common common speak. What, mm -hmm. what that what that means because my, my sense is since I am AARP eligible plus 20 uh, it sounds like something <laughs> that might be of interest to me and to our listening audience yeah absolutely happy to happy to go over it um, so the the inclusion across the lifespan policy was implemented in 2019 I believe and and it was a, a recognition by the National Institutes of Health or the NIH 
that federally funded research needed to prioritize the inclusion of subjects across the lifespan, specifically including both children and older adults and research studies going forward. And it's kind of in that same vein that we were talking about before. In order to know the effectiveness and safety of treatments in these groups, you need to test it in these groups. You need to enroll those patients. Um, and I think that, you know, the purpose of the inclusion across the lifespan policy was just that, to ensure that individuals are included in clinical research in a manner that's appropriate to the questions being asked. Um, so that knowledge that's gained from these federally funded studies are uh, is a, applicable um, to the uh, the patients being researched uh, and their diseases. And so I think this was an incredibly important step towards targeting, um, you know, enrollment of historically underrepresented populations, specifically older adults and children in clinical trials. And uh, I think, you know, also incredibly important to encourage studies to not exclude patients mm -hmm. based solely on chronological age, which was something that was happening a lot mm. uh, up until recently. Uh, and so, and really to include patients from across the aging spectrum, I think is super important. So mm. uh, it's a great policy. As, as we kind of wind down, gentlemen, because we have another 10 minutes or so, I was just curious, um, Dr. Nana, you hear, my, my thought goes to my, my wife who has had, who has had a number of friends that have been hospitalized and going through treatments, and she's taken a, taken a, taken up on it as a really a personal mission where she'll go with them to the the uh, appointments and take notes because that environment it can if you don't have another person there to kind of translate or share, and just the angst and the anxiety of going to a, a doctor's appointment. But 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 I'm trying to get to uh, most people have heard this the term beta blockers and calcium channel blockers and you know you get so so bombarded with the, just the stress of life but but tell us a little bit about if, if you could the differences between beta blockers and calcium channel blockers yeah so um you know beta blockers and calcium channel blockers are generally considered the two first line classes of medications that are uh, meant to be antianginals to treat symptoms related to stable angina. Um, they work via different mechanisms, um, but the purpose of both of them are to improve what we call the oxygen supply demand balance in the heart, meaning mm. there's a demand for oxygen in the heart, there's the supply of oxygen to the heart, and you want that to be in balance. And when it's imbalanced, patients get symptoms. So both of these medicines work on that balance. Um, both classes of medicine carry their own advantages and disadvantages. And I think you know, that's really the purpose of our trial is to see which one works best mm -hmm. in older adults, especially those with multiple chronic conditions. Um, and I'll just point out, you know, besides those two medicines, there are other anti-angial medicines that folks can be on, nitrate medications, short-acting or long-acting. There's a medicine called renolazine. And certainly for patients that are having ongoing symptoms, um, there are invasive options, as I mentioned before, heart artery stents that can open up the arteries to allow more blood flow and even bypass surgery in patients that have very advanced disease. Mm -hmm. And, the, you know, the ultimate goal of all of these treatments is to help patients to feel better and live a better quality of life. And the, the uh, for the study itself is, are we into, is it a seven year, five year? What's the, the, the lifespan, if you will, of the study at the moment? 
Yeah, so um, so we're going to be enrolling uh, around for the next three years. Follow-up for the individual patients in the study is a year. Um, and so, you know, we're hoping after those three years of enrollment, we'll have enrolled a sufficient number of patients to answer the study question. Uh, and then there'll be some time where we're kind of uh, getting the data together, cleaning the data, uh, and then we'll be hopefully presenting results in the fall of, I believe, 2027. Hmm. Excellent. Excellent. Reverend Perry. Uh, I wanna, yeah, I, I want to say also that, you know, the cultural ambassadors almost eight years ago came up with the idea that um, we need to have researchers come to where we are, mm-hmm. that, that we should not, uh, the problem has always been trying to go where they are. And that's, that's been that broken bridge. And so getting, getting the researchers to come to the community is an important thing. Secondly, compensating them for doing that because you know people work they got to get they got to go to work they're going to miss time off they they have to deal with transportation and some studies just don't even give a valid enough money to get an uber car (laughs) to get to where you are so that those are some of the things that we help uh, researchers look at clearly when we are trying to help them and thirdly we ask them how what does your team look like do you have a diversity? You're talking about diversity, and yet you don't hire people on your team that look like us or look like the people you're trying to help. So there are some major factors, I think, that we try to bring to all researchers, not to just this study, but to all studies, mm-hmm. in order for them to be successful. Those are three of the ground uh, fundamentals, I think, that, that mm-hmm. we have to throw out. And, and when researchers pick up on those and follow those, I think we have better outcomes. Yeah, that's a, that's such an important point. All three of those pillars, um, and I would say to the researchers out there, you know, you may say, okay, well, I'm going to take time out of my Saturday. Well, I was I was at the Juneteenth celebration, uh, I guess now two Saturdays ago on the 17th, uh, and and I learned way more from being at that celebration, and I got to enjoy myself way more than I could have ever expected um, with everything that was going on and the dancers and uh, the food. (laughs) Uh, And so I think, you know, put yourself out there as a researcher, take that advice from Dr. Perry and really get out into the community and you'll find that your research will be more reflective of your community and that you'll learn a lot. Hmm. Uh, There is a question, Dr. Hannah, I would like to ask, and it's not People should know that our shows are live, so they're not rehearsed at all. Um, but let me kind of spit it out, if I will. A lot of Black people don't live to be 75. Is that your target 75? Should it be 70? Talk to us about how that benchmark was reached in terms of this research project. Yeah, so I mean, the, the cutoff of 75 is sort of um, the cutoff that's been used in a lot of the aging research uh, as as sort of denoting uh, when, you know, you define older adults. In some ways, any chronological age cutoff that you use is always a little bit arbitrary, right? You know, if there was a way we could measure and quantify biological age, right, physiological age, that would be more meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the goal. When I retire, I hope we're there, right? So that rather than having an age cutoff that excludes patients that maybe have already kind of aged more, we could include those patients. Um, 
but you make a good point and and you're right you know black individuals especially black men um many of them don't reach the age of 75 uh, and that's why shows like this and studies like this are so important because the onus is on us as clinicians to commit to changing that mm. right it's a call to action the time is now we've described it for too long there are too many studies describing that inequities exist now is the time to fix it i really appreciate your response could could you have a 70 cutoff rather than 75 is there, is there a medical or epidemiological reason why you've chosen 75 rather than 70. Yeah, you know, again, it goes back to sort of what the literature describes as and uses as a cutoff. Um, it's a it's a good question. And I think, you know, as we're enrolling patients, if we find that of the patients we screen, the major barrier is that we're losing patients because of that cutoff. And there's a lot of patients sitting in that 70 to 74 year old range that would otherwise be great candidates. Um, there's always a possibility of an amendment to the protocol down the road. Excellent, excellent. Uh, we have about four, four and a half minutes, gentlemen. And so as the spirit moves in terms of questions that you might have, uh, Reverend Clayton, can you hear us okay now? Yes, it has improved. Great, great. Let's continue the improvement. Any uh, questions, concerns, contributions you'd like to make as we kind of wind down? Well, I think, Tom, one of the things that we've, we've learned as, um, as ambassadors has been that you've almost got to know the weather you're flying in. Mm. And then sometimes the weather changes and you've got to be able to change with that. So like when we talked about how during COVID, we had a project that dealt with senior citizens who did not know how to manage the internet or the mm -hmm. web. And so they couldn't do telemedicine. They couldn't go to church. They couldn't communicate with family members. And so we brought a team from Yale in who met with seniors who were from 70 to 95 mm. and taught them how to get a Facebook account and an email address and how they can look up their doctor and meet their doctor. So I say that knowing the weather you're flying in, we have to be adjustable to be able to look at a situation and see how, how, we, can, how, how we can better improve it. So one of the things that we're telling all of our researchers now is that, and, and I, I spoke to you about it, Tom, about all the health fairs that we have in New Haven. Mm -hmm. And you sent me a list of like five or eight different health fairs that are annual. And mm -hmm. I'm saying to these researchers, why don't you go there, mm -hmm. set up a table, introduce yourself, and explain um, to the population that you're trying to reach why you're there and why you're doing this study. Yes. And those are the kind of innovative things that we, that we work on almost every day. How can we do this better? Yes. And that's important to uh, listen to what the people are saying. If they're saying why why they're here and why why aren't they coming to where we are? And you know, they're in big magazines that don't even reach our community or <laughs> websites that we never get a chance to look at because we don't have internet or hi-fi, I mean Wi-Fi. So we gotta figure out how to how to break some of these other disparities down to get this message equitably across to disproportionate minority populations. Excellent. Reverend Perry, oh. just as you're, just as you're right. mentioning, then I'm gonna shut up because we have about, uh, give everybody the last word. Uh, Tom, Tom I, I'm an alder here in Ward 28 and Tommy Veal 
city of New Haven. She's head of our, Dr. Hannah, she's head of our elderly services. And just as Reverend Perry was talking, I'm gonna reach out to Tommy now and kind of connect her with you because of the senior citizens centers might be another uh, captive area. We meet the Dixwell Senior Citizen, for example, meets on Wednesdays and just the elderly, the city of New Haven elderly services needs to know about this project. So Reverend Perry, thanks for lifting that up. Uh, Reverend Clayton, you're about to say something. Yeah, we were at a health fair in New Haven uh, last week. And one, one important aspect of this health fair was that um, all family members were, were present. Mm. So not only a person who had the need for a certain trial, but uh, the husband or the wife, uh, the, the son, the daughter, uh, all of, everyone can, can receive the information and made aware what's yes. available yes. to their family members. So, so that's another part of this thing that, that is uh, great for, for to, to help us keep making more and more people aware, especially the targeted group that you're trying to reach. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Nana, I'm gonna give you the last word. We have about uh, 30 seconds. Yeah, so I, you know, Reverend Clayton brings up something really important there, which has been honestly entirely, almost entirely absent from the cardiovascular disease literature. And that's how do the treatments that we deliver impact not just patients, but also their caregivers. Mm -hmm. So that's something unique about Live Better is we're actually enrolling caregivers as well and looking at the impact of these therapies uh, on, um, on caregiver burden. Patients don't need to have a caregiver to enroll, but certainly those that do, we're really encouraging them to join the study as well, something we're really excited about. And I just wanted to thank, uh, you know, the reverends uh, and you, Tom, for having me on and, um, and uh, again, really encourage people to reach out if they have questions about the study. Live, live better, that's the rule, that, that's the <laughs> mantra, that, that's the prayer. And thank you for kind of being a, a sojourner, Dr. Nana. And we, we know that Reverend Perry and Reverend Clayton have been sojourners from birth. So we, you, you guys are, uh, <laughs> you, guys are you guys have been, been, been on the battlefield and you're still standing. Oh, Lordy. Absolutely. Praise the Lord. Harry, that's a wrap. Thank you, everybody. Be well, live better. Reach out to Dr. Hannah. He's a good, he's a good soul and we need to kind of wrap our arms around him and, and his tribe. Thanks, thank you everybody. Take As care. I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen. I'm never quitting on my mission. I'ma roll with what I'm giving. Got some ambition, this new edition, filling positions. Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment you stressing, but you gon' be counting blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working, open curtains, haters swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version. I'm never gonna give up, give up. Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up.